Go to thekennedyreport.com and visit the TKR store to see our new products, Kennedy's Choice Beard Oil. You can use this on your beard to help with alleviating itchiness, dryness, and irritation of skin. And don't worry, no animals were used in testing this product except for myself. Use Kennedy's Choice Beard Balm for a softer, healthier, manageable beard that is made with natural ingredients. And trust me, I know a thing or two about beards. Visit thekennedyreport.com and check out the TKR store. The links for this are in the description. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kennedy Hall, and you are tuning into the Kennedy Report. And I'm here with, um, I've never had him on my channel before. I had him when I was on the radio, uh, the Crusade channel. And um, Charles, the last name, is it pronounced frown or frowne? Frowny, actually. Frowny. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So Charles has a new book. We're going to get right into that. I'll show you right here. It's The Rise of the Occult, What Exorcists and Former Occultists Want You to Know. And I've been lucky enough to go through a lot of it. And um, there's some good stuff in here. Really, really good stuff. This is 300 and almost 350 pages, firsthand research. We'll talk about that as we go. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kennedy, for having me on. So the first thing I wanted to ask, because there is a section in here about the occult infiltration into the Catholic Church, uh, which grabbed my attention. I'm just going to read a, a short passage to show how you, this is actually something that's happened in an, uh, even in the ancient times. And uh, it says, from the research of Sister Antoinette Marie Pratt in uh, 1915, in her book, The Attitude of the Catholic Church Towards Witchcraft and the Allied Practices of Sorcery and Magic, it is clear that the church has had to deal with all sorts of issues over the last 2,000 years, including witchcraft, superstition, sorcery, enchanters, astrology, amulets, and ligatures, which I didn't know, uh, but that's a spell against fertility. I'll ask you about that. Nature worship, magicians, divination, satanic sacrifice, soothsayers, charms, and the conjuring of demons. Just a few things to be concerned about. Can you give us a brief history of the... Um, uh, occult infiltration to the church, and if that's around today. Yeah, and actually the, the presence of the occult in the church today is what led me to the book by Sister uh, Antoinette Marie Pratt, as you mentioned, and she traces it. She wrote it 100 years ago, which I think is important for us to note, 1915. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the church, and she chronicles popes, councils, um, mostly local councils, but a lot of papal inter- um, interventions in different areas of the world, mainly in Europe, where the uh, the occult was on the rise. And think about St. Peter Damien, like he blasted the church in Italy and beyond for um, sodomy being widespread. And there are connections now we see with with that uh, that tolerance and permissiveness and embrace of that sin, that grave sin is uh, prevalent all throughout the church and the world today. But yeah, so if you look, go back to Acts of the Apostles, you see St. Paul encouraging people to burn all of their witchcraft books. So the occult was everywhere when the church came on the scene. That's something a lot of people just overlook. The occult was widespread in the world from the fall of Adam and Eve up until Christ came to challenge it. And then you see people renouncing the occult constantly as the church spread. But that purge of sin, you know, is imperfect as we go throughout the world. Throughout time, people embrace, the, embrace our Lord half-heartedly or they go back. Or they, you know, the zeal at the beginning, as our Lord um, critiques one of the churches in the book of Revelation, your zeal has waned. So the occult can resurge 
And as the church goes into different pagan areas, people get, you know, if your faith is weak, if a missionary or priest's faith is weak, they can end up adopting some of these pagan practices. So what Sister proved was the church was constantly trying to purge the occult from all the missionary lands and from the Catholics who were converted there, who were half-heartedly converted. Um, and we see there's something uh, called the Affair of the Poisons, which I mentioned, which an exorcist told me about from the um, late 1600s, is around the time of St. Um, uh, Margaret Mary Alacoque and the Sacred Heart Devotion. Where our, and he said what our Lord is condemning as uh, sacrileges against the Eucharist were these black masses that Catholic priests were getting involved in in the late 1600s. And there were all these magical things happening, trying to, uh, to I think, to kill one of the kings through magical practices. Like magic was a big deal, even among Christians in the 1600s. And then some of the people, so one thing I'm not sure if I mentioned to you is that there's a part two to the rise of the occult. The original research had this book like close to 800 pages. Okay. And one of the big things that I, uh, I interviewed someone who's kind of made the news, uh, Rachel, I can't pronounce her last name very well, Mastro Giacoma. And she, yes. had, she had suffered from uh, satanic ritual abuse. So I interviewed her by a priest. Yep. And so apparently there are lots of priests who are involved in satanic things, occultic things nowadays. And that's what brought this on the radar. And like, wow, like her story, I interviewed her, I think three different times and her story is going to be in the part two. Okay. Um, but it's, it's there. And these are just priests. There's evidence of lots of stories. I covered four public stories of priests in the United States crossing over to Italy who are involved in satanic ish practices and abuse of people, manipulation of people using the sacraments that's something that Sister discovered in her research that witchcraft and Satanism in the past had uh, abused the Eucharist uh, and other sacraments. So we see that happening now. We see that happening centuries ago. So there's this ongoing battle with the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, which which appeals to the to the pride of a lot of people, including churchmen and you know, we have Pachamama, we have yeah. Francis and Cardinals in Canada, as you would know, going to sage smudging. We have sage smudging in Catholic schools in Australia. Yeah. Um, Here too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just widespread uh, in Catholic schools, Catholic parishes, priests recommending people going after Hindu prayer to find healing for spiritual wounds. So it's bad. So let's let's define our terms here. What is the occult? I know the word basically means hidden. So sometimes you'll find the word funny enough in older literature and it'll say like occult such and such. It doesn't mean in the occult. It means a hidden something or other, you know, occult, occult heresy. It doesn't mean the heresy of the occult. It means like someone is a, a heretic in a sort of hidden sense. Um, so what is occultism the way that you're talking about it in your book? Right. So uh, that was a challenge when it came to picking the title for the book, because I was interviewing, interviewed 16 former occultists. So they were um, had influence, imp interacted with Satanists. They were former Wiccans, former witches, former New Agers, former everything. So then I'm like, oh, how do I, you know, how do I grab all that into one word? But the occult was always there, the occult, the occult, the occult. So it's kind of a, a term that has been applied to uh, is kind of like a catch all to all of these different um esoteric, dark, deity, goddess, um, Luciferian, satanic practices, spiritual practices, these fringe things that the church has clearly condemned that are dangerous, that involve the diabolical. So I just decided to run with it. I think it's in chapter chapter one, I, I list all the different things that I'm thinking about when I use the term occult. 
And um, kind of like what, what you read from sister, the list you read off there, like what she saw is what we're seeing still today. Astrology, new age, Wicca, witchcraft, Satanism, uh, manifesting. There are all these things that even some Christians have, have brought into their, a lot of Protestants, especially um, sometimes charismatics have brought into their prayer style. Um, but yeah, so a cult would be it, one of the things that makes it difficult now, like you said, a cult means hidden, means secret, and it can be used benignly. Um, and one of the things that's confusing now to use that term, even though it does apply, is that the occult is now public. Like Satanists are in your face. Astrology, like yep. it's, it's in vogue. It is the, the the hip way of things now. So eventually that, that term's not going to be relevant, not going to be accurate, because it'll be, it's almost becoming mainstream. So I'm thinking one of my, I mean, probably my favorite saint. I don't know. Can you pick a favorite saint? He's one of them. Uh, saint Augustine. He's, uh, I, I actually picked his, his name is my, my, my name for the third order of, of the Society of St. Pius X. I don't know if you call it religious name. I'm not a religious, but my, my, my religious name in that sense. Um, I love St. Augustine so much. And one of the things, I was not in the occult. I, I, I was more, more, I was closer to an atheist persuasion. So uh, the idea of being part of uh, some sort of spiritual group was cringe to me before I kind of came back to the faith. But um, uh, St. Augustine, uh, I related to him because in, in one sense he was kind of, I don't know, atheism isn't the right word because there wasn't atheism, but I guess you'd call him a skeptic. But that skepticism did lead him to Manichaeism, mm -hmm. which... Uh, resurfaced, you know, a thousand years later, roughly Albigensianism or 800 years, whatever the timeline is. The Cathars were basically Manichaeans. That would that be an example of something that would be considered an occult group or practice? Yeah, because uh, like I think with the Manichaeans, um, Saint Augustine, there were secret rituals, secret rites. If if you right. had access to certain knowledge, then you could acquire. Um, certain powers and it was all about power too i think the end is is one of the keys like in all throughout the occult there were there were common themes i picked up on energy the manipulation of energy to achieve what you want according to your morality so that right. you can become spiritually powerful if not a god yourself and i, I think that is one of the things like if you is this an occult practice well is it uh, deferential to divine revelation if it's a no well then you're leaning towards the occult already is it seeking, um, are you submitting yourself to an objective morality that comes from divine revelation and the occult would not? Um, so I think you, you, you see self-will, you see willfulness, pride, uh, I, the I, like one Church of Satan leader said, Satanism is atheism. Like I am God, I, right. you worship yourself and you, are, you direct yourself. So, and that's what St. That's what Augustine was doing as a Manichaean. So I guess in some ways, uh, Lucifer was the first occultist because uh, he, you know, basically he was God according to himself or, or at least divine. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, I've got Charles Frawney. Did I say it right this time? That's right. Okay, good. All right, I'm a language. I study, I speak a bunch of languages, so I see and I automatically go to the phonetics. So I was looking at it as Frawney, but anyway, um, or French, Frawn. But um uh, he wrote a book called Slaying Dragons to the Rise of the Occult. It's right here. He was gracious enough to send me a copy, and it is excellent. Who made your cover, by the way? This is beautiful. Yeah, I'm about to, um, if I were moving faster as a, an indie press, I would have already published an, an article about that. 
So a lady named Caroline Green, she did, um, so I'll give her credit for what you see, but I came up with the, the layout. Um, okay. So this image is the um, Triumph of Christianity over Paganism by, by Gustave Doré. And I fell for that one like right after I published Slaying Dragons and entered into the Twitter world and I started to, to push my book that way. But yeah, so I laid it out like that in a Word document. And I, I, as an indie press guy with no money to invest in my company, I'm like, well, I'll publish that. You know, the book will speak for itself. But then I'm, I reached out to some people who know the Martin, know the uh, Catholic yeah. publishing world. And they're like, yeah, I know somebody. So she, uh, Caroline Green, she was, she was great. She took what I had and just made it pop. And that's what I wanted. And when I saw the cover, my reaction was, wow, I hope people judge my book by the cover. Yeah, exactly. Well, if I can do it, I guess it's not a shameless plug if it's your own show, but um, um, I have to show my cover here quick because a, a friend of mine, Enrique Aguilar, he is listed on my, uh, He's you can see the cover there. Um, he made this cover of Archbishop Lefebvre and what he did, you know, I, I, had, I had originally thought, okay, I'm going to just find a picture of Lefebvre and use... Photoshop editor Canva thing and make a thing with a title on and that'll be fine. And I was, I was advised by some seasoned Catholic authors, no, get a good cover done. And um, he did an incredible job and it's just amazing what these artists can do. So we've both been blessed with these wonderful um, artists helping us. And that's just so important because frankly, you sent me your book. I opened it up. I looked at the package came from Amazon and I went, I can't wait to put this on my coffee table. You know, I can't wait to, for people to see this thing. And I mean, it's, the, the cover of it is almost a catechism. It just tells you exactly what you should be expecting when you open the book. So bravo to, to your team for putting that together. Um, okay, so we've talked about the rise of the occult in history. Um, what, what would you think in the church today would be the most dangerous um, temptation for the occult? Where do we actually see this in our day-to-day -day lives sort of in contact with the hierarchy, sort of the politics of the church. Yeah, that's, uh, there are many answers to that one that came, that ran through my head as you were asking it. Um, so it goes down to the, to the atheism. I think there's a, there's a strain of atheism in, in the modern church because everything's novelty ever since Vatican II. It's like, you know, I, there, there are no parameters. Like uh, even the way the, the modern mass is governed, like, there are no parameters. Like you can freewheel it if you want. And apparently, I don't yeah. know if the rubrics even say that, but they treat it like the rubrics say, yeah, freewheel it. Um, and that's that's not that's not how Catholic tradition works. Like even with devotions, like you, devotions are not criticized, not scrutinized. Uh, it's one of the things that's right. With with yoga, one of the criticisms with yoga is that people people don't and with all the occult, but people don't discern. They don't discern the spirits. So there's a lack of discernment of spirits, and that might be in the church, a lack of discernment of spirits of what's going on, even with with um, with uh, supposed apparitions, you know, potential apparitions, yep. all these uh, potential prophecies that may or may not be true. There's, a, there's a, a vein of superstition in the modern church, and a lot of people don't are clueless. They're, they're, they don't even get it. Even like with sacramentals, I'm doing a lot of research on sacramentals. There are strains of, of superstitious, superstitious uses of sacramentals, too. And even, even like someone tried to, uh, when it came to the sage smudging, some cardinal, I think, tried to push sage as a new sacramental, you know, like that's, yeah. what, the, that's what Francis is doing. So it's this, this willfulness, this atheism, essentially. Um, and I, 
maybe with that comes a total disregard for history, for tradition. We see that with the attack, the literal attack on the traditional Latin mass. Like the, the church is a momentum uh, from yeah. which Christ started. Like we don't jump out of that momentum without risking. It's like we're traveling in the wake of a boat. Like you're, you're surfing behind the boat and it's easy and you move with the church you move with the Holy Spirit, not creating your own spirit, your own winds to sail on. Uh, it may seem fun and exciting, and that's what the occult is, but eventually you're going to crash and uh, get in grave spiritual danger. So I want to just, uh, just grab my pencil here because there's so many things I want to make sure I write down so I don't forget to ask you. Um, so, okay, one of the streams of thought that I want to continue with there is you mentioned apparitions, and I've I've got some decent feedback and a little bit of criticism for talking about this, but whatever, I expected it. Um I think people need to be careful with apparitions, even when they're approved, and not just apparitions, I should say private revelations. Let's go a little bit more broadly. An apparition in the truest sense that's approved, this has gone through the normal channels, and there are actually very few approved apparitions for the universal church. Um, even Our Lady of Good Success, the Buenso Seso, it is approved locally, but it wasn't established as a universal devotion to the church. That doesn't mean it's not true. I, I think it's perfectly true. But my point is, is, you know, there's only like 10 or 11 apparitions of Mary that are actually have gone through the scrutiny of something like a Fatima, for example, or of Guadalupe. And these are, these are okay for the whole church. But even there, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Fatima world. I used to work for the Fatima Center. I've, you know, read more literature than most people, have, you know, professionally needed to. And, um, even with an approved apparition, I've noticed how, and this is not a criticism, my friends, at all on Fatima. I have, it, on the other side of that wall, we have this beautiful statue of Our Lady of Fatima on our mantle, instead of a TV, get rid of your TV. Um, and uh, and we pray the rosary and, and that and the crucifix every night. And I love Fatima. I absolutely adore Fatima. I love Our Lady of Guadalupe. But I've seen even with an approved apparition like Fatima, that there is a... Um, tendency that you know the devil uses good things to damn our souls that's all he can do because all created things are by definition good because they have existence right so he can only pervert the way that we use or approach things personally maybe you can elaborate on this i think even going after approved apparitions as a bulwark of your spiritual life presents itself to at least a temptation to something like a gnosticism an esotericism or an occultism what would you say to that? Yeah, because one of the things that we see even in Fatima is a conditional nature to the messages right. and the apparitions. <laughs> so if the, unless the world turns from sin, you know, our Lord is going to send a greater punishment. The Second World War, uh, according yeah. to the interpretations, is the punishment. But if if the world had responded to Our Lady in the beginning, things would have been different. So her prophecies are, are relative, are, are subject to our cooperation. And I mean, that's how God works, too. But his revelations, his predictions are definitive. They're going to happen. He told us certain things are going to happen. You must do these things. And that's all in sacred scripture. Right. Um, so, yeah, I agree. There's a, a certain. And I think there's there is a temptation there because uh, a private revelation or an apparition is something sensational. It's something supernatural that's occurring that you can grasp to that confirms your faith. But it's ambiguous. You know, it's. 
the church doesn't understand at the apparitions necessarily it doesn't understand right. the full meaning. And then if you try to latch onto it and define like, this is what she meant, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. You could go wayward. And sometimes it pulls you away from sacred scripture itself because you, you think even like a subtle, like play, cause it plays on our, our, our weaknesses from concupiscence from, from the fall. Like you may think, you know, the answer and you could be wrong, but you're going to go after that answer. So, yeah, so I, I agree. Um, and I, I think the more, and it was a St. John of the Cross. I think I have this in Slaying Dragons in my original book. He, he warns against, as does St. Teresa of Avila, I'm pretty sure, yes. warns against like seeking any kind of thing like this. Like don't seek visions. If you get one, ignore it. Like it's not necessary to your salvation. And it could be the devil. Most often it yeah. is the devil or your own imagination. Yeah. There Again, was credit Fatima. I love Fatima like you. No, but you're no, you're exactly correct. And my wife, she read a book. Um, I recommend this book to all mothers, women in general. <clears throat> I believe it's called Councils of Perfection for the Christian Mother. It's an incredible book. French priest. It is translated. I think it's one of those books that's like 99 cents on, on Kindle. I don't oh. know if you can find a, a paper copy easily, so there is a Kindle. Um my wife read it last year and she was raving about it the whole time. And it was written under under Pope Pius X. It was a priest, you know, a, a, a good spiritual writer, a great spiritual writer. And he wrote in there um, that he would advise that women wouldn't even read any private revelations without the permission explicitly of their spiritual director. And he talked about because they're, you know, Women are so relational, so emotional. This is why they're such good nurturers and things. Men have other strengths, and we both have weaknesses that play off of those strengths, as it always is the case. And there's a sentimentalism, let's say, attached to the feelings that you get from reading something that gives you some sort of initial or immediate spiritual consolation. Mm -hmm. And these private revelations, even the approved ones, he even said women shouldn't be reading them. I, that's going to make people upset because I don't care if, and we'll talk about the charismatic renewal in a sec. You mentioned that, but charismatics, I'm a traditionalist, um, even just conservative Novus Ordo, Medjugorje people. Like there is, you know, it's all, it often is the case that a lot of these private revelations are very female heavy in their representation as far as proponents of them. And again, you know, there's nothing wrong with female having opinions. We're not saying that, but what I mean is, um, it almost becomes like uh, Catholic tarot cards. You know, it almost becomes like, um, um, uh, you, know, you know, remember that that's the image of that conspiracy theorist in front of the board and he's got all the things up there and they've got, you know, all these different books and all these different prayer cards, all these different saints. And it's like, and this is when the warning is going to come. And it's like, mm. whoa, we're, ma we're making some very big statements here about global events, chastisements and, Every single person in history, except for like a handful, have all been wrong <laughs> on predictions of things to come. Um, and uh, so what would you say? I mean, would you say that people should, generally speaking, kind of stay away from revelations and stuff? Or it, it, what would you say to that? Yeah, I guess that's uh, kind of hard to answer. I, I tend to. So my tendency is I know Fatima. Um, it's one thing like Guadalupe. Our Lady of Guadalupe, there was no, as far as I know, there was no prophecy, no prediction. It was a m massive miracle of conversion with a message internal there that we can look back to, kind of like a, a story of a saint, the life of a saint. Um, Lords, again, something similar. Um, 
St. Catherine Library, the Miraculous Medal, something similar. Yeah. Fatima takes a very interesting role, and I can see why people are getting attached to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess in the modern era, we're living in, a, in an age of darkness. Like we could be in the final apostasy. We could be in the times right before the end. Like, literally, we could be. If you look at Pope Leo XIII, Pius X, everything that happened leading up to um, Vatican II, even things that Paul VI said, and even JP II and others have, have talked about this, the spirit of evil being in the church. I mean, that was Paul VI himself who destroyed, you know, the brought in the old mass and started the way out of the, sorry, brought in the new mass and started the way out for the old mass. But he said something preternatural has in, entered into the church. So there's, there's an unrest. Smoke of Satan, the smoke of Satan. Yeah. And then he, yeah. he went on, which I have in this book, in The Rise of the Occult, to mention like something preternatural has entered to try to disrupt the church on the, the verge of this, this new council. So my point being there is that yeah. there's this spiritual unrest in the world. So people are desperate. There's, a, there's the desperation. And I think that's what drives a lot of people to, to have this like, you know, collection, this collage of apparitions that they're referencing and going by and daily messages. Like with Medjugorje, I think one thing people get attached to there is that she's always speaking. Like that yeah. idea that Our Lady is speaking to us is because uh, well, not to get into what Medjugorje is all about, but that's they're looking for the for the consolation of heaven to talk to them in an age of darkness, and and that's understandable that we want that reprieve, we want that that peace, but the devil's going to take advantage of that, and I think in an age where catechesis is almost destroyed completely, and the tradition of the faith has not been handed on hardly at all, the occult and our, our the devil's deceptions can enter in very easily. That's one of the things from my interviews with former cultists is that a lack of catechesis, a, a lack of satisfaction for mysticism drove people to the occult because the occult was saying, hey, look, I got your fireworks here. I got your spiritual fireworks if you want them. Yeah. And so I think there's some kind of overlap there. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I was actually going to just ask you that, you know, and you kind of answered it, but, you know, is, is, is the aftermath from the council, you know, debate about the particulars of the documents aside, um, this the Vatican II, as far as the practical implementation thereof, has this opened the door or at least laid the groundwork for looking for, let's say, looking for spirituality in the wrong, in bad neighborhoods, something like that, you know? And I, I you know, I go, again, I go to the traditional mass. Everyone knows this. I'm a Society of St. Pius X supporter. This is no secret. Um, and funny enough, you know, because our whole life is just traditional Catholicism very plainly, uh, personally in my household, this isn't the same for everybody, but in my household, I mean, I have no real desire to look outside of my prayer book, outside of the Bible and outside of, you know, certain books of the saints that are just more about the spiritual life. I just don't have any desire to, it's not because I don't think it's important, but you know, it just seems to me that um, it's a lot of work to save your soul. It's a lot of work to become holy. And I'm not even in the same universe as being holy. Um, if I were going to spend my time trying to figure out a load of private revelations and stuff, that just seems to me like it would be a huge distraction. It's, it's interesting. It makes for good YouTube shows and we can kind of think about it. But as far as like constantly thinking about, you know, the three days of darkness, et cetera, which we'll get into in a second... That seems to me like it's a big distraction. So would you say, I mean, you say that you say that the uh, these things can be used as a distraction. Um, maybe you can elaborate on this. 
Personally, I think an overemphasis on the end timesy private revelation stuff can actually lead to a feeling of despair. Would you agree with that? Mm. Yeah, because um, yeah, yeah, I think so too. Because you, when you were talking just now, signs and wonders um, became came to the to the top, and that's that's present. That's what the occult offers, and that's kind of one of the warnings our Lord gives at the end times. There will be false false Christs, the Antichrist, the Beast, signs and wonders, false signs, uh, false miracles, and I, I, I do think. Because when you're when you're focused too much on the end on the end, whether it's now and what are the signs and how to be ready, uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of frantic destabilizing um, anxiety. Whereas if you just hunker down with with the essentials, um, the public revelation, the things that are necessary for our salvation, that's where the flow of grace is going to be immense, and um, it's going to take away that anxiety. Plus, we got to we have to relax. You know, our Lord said we're not going to know. The, the day yeah. or the hour. We might know the season, as I like to put it, but we're not going to know the day and the hour. And if we're too distracted by by all of that stuff, we're not going to um, focus on our own salvation, focus on the purity of our soul and whether we are ready ourselves. Yeah, if you see Enoch and Elias dead in the street and they rise again three days later, sure, you can make an educated guess at the end times are around the corner. <laughs> yeah. But until that happens, I mean, you know, and this is not a this is not a um, criticism of some great saints, but I mean, you read some of these saints like Jerome and others. I mean, Saint Vincent of, Vincent of Ferrer, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they were pretty much convinced the end times were around the corner um, because of the, the trends that they see, that they saw in their times, which again, you know, there, there's a reality. There could be the end times are, obviously they're going to come, could be sort of conditional insofar as, you know, um, the the spiritual devotion of the people kind of holds back the wrath of God, if that makes sense. I don't know. I'm, I, that's not that's about my pay grade. But as you talk about signs and wonders, well, Christ does say a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Um, obviously, he's speaking specifically to the Jews and the Pharisees and so forth. Uh, you know that are, are are interrogating him on certain things. But nonetheless, it is one of those spiritual maxims that does um, hold water in our day because we are a wicked and adulterous generation. Um, and, uh, I mean, in this world of, of, and it's not people's fault. It's not people's fault that the church has, you know, become materialized and mundane and that sort of stuff. So, of course, they're looking for something else. But it's, it is evidence of our wicked and adulterous generation. Um, okay. I wanted to ask you about Freemasonry in your research. Did that come up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I, I did a talk um, with the Fatima Center, <clears throat> which you just mentioned a minute ago, a couple months ago, just published on Low Sunday. So I think it was April 16th. Yeah. Um, so I talked about Fatima and spiritual warfare and Freemasonry was was a big deal. And actually, I was flipping through the book before we started, where I think it's page 186, where I trace when I was doing the finalizing for the book, I started to like, I noticed a trend, but I hadn't finalized the uh, the details. But it's footnote 15 on page 186. Significant leaders in the modern occult movements were members of Freemasonry or indirectly associated and influenced by it. So Aleister Crowley, um, Gerald Gardner. So you have Thelema, Wicca, Helena Blavatsky, um, Theosophy, Spiritualism, New Age Movement, um, founders of the Golden Dawn who influenced Wicca and Thelema were, were related to the Freemasons. Anton LaVey. Um, he said that every, 
every occult group has Masonic origins. And he pulled some of his rituals, Anton LaVey, from some Masonic rituals from the Satanic, um, as he mentions in the Satanic Bible. So, yeah, Freemasonry is, is an occultic group. Like, I don't know how much the common Catholic really understands these days, but uh, I mean, it's evil. Like one of the things Shriners, one of the things I learned about, I don't know, 15 years ago, that become a, to become a Shriner, you have to swear an oath to Allah on the Quran. And you have to be at least a third degree Mason. Then do that. So any Shriner you see has pledged his soul to, to Allah. Of course, at that one of the things they do is they coach you to believe that oaths don't matter. Uh, so that's how you get to the free, Freemasonic curse, which exorcists talk about a lot. Um, but yeah, Freemasonry is behind it all. I'm trying to remember Pius X talked about Freemasonry. Uh, Leo XIII did. But Pius X is the one that warned that the evil, that modernism has infected the church through the priests. And then we see the fruit of that in the modern era now. But yeah. And of course, there was that lie that was spread in the 80s and the 90s that it's okay now to be, to be a Freemason and a Catholic, which was just a total lie. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> in your research, see, I've always wondered, because Freemasonry is so secretive, mm. um, it makes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a term here, a deep fake. It makes a deep fake so easy. And what I mean by that is there are definitely people who have left Freemasonry, but then when I look at the claims of people who have left Freemasonry, and they describe Freemasonry. Sometimes they actually really contradict one another. Mm. Um, is it possible? I mean, would you maybe maybe an educated guess from your research? Do you think there are people who are uh, alleged former Freemasons, but are still active, and they sort of maybe sow discord in the church by by spreading misinformation? I mean, is that something that you've ever come across or crossed your mind? I haven't come across that specifically, but if that is actually happening, they would hide themselves pretty well. I mean, if you think about Bella Dodd and the claims there about uh, communists infiltrating the church, which I know some of those claims are disputed, but if you look at the evidence, it seems clear. There's also one um, convert from Satanism. He's in my book, Ryan Zwiegler. He converted, I think, a year ago, and I caught his conversion testimonies and incorporated some of his story into my book, but he was saying that in South Africa, where he was, that Satanists had infiltrated Protestant mega mega communities, whatever you want to call them. Um, yep. And it, people didn't know, like even some of the preachers were uh, part of the South African satanic church because the gospel message was so corrupted. It was so, it was an atheistic kind of system. Like it was all about power and money and influence. So the Satanists just snuck right in and, and weren't even noticed. And that's kind of hard to believe. And then the question rises, you know, he's a former Satanist. Did he fully convert? Is there any, any kind of like um, covert operating there? I'm not going to hold anything against him. But, you know, as an example, um, right? it's some people have, a, you know, just like some people have a hard time believing what exorcists say that demons have told them. Like, well, can we trust that? Well, like, can you trust a former Freemason? Can you trust a former Satanist, a former uh, occultist? Uh, well, eventually, if the if you see a consistency in the message, which you just pointed out was absent from some of your research from former Freemasons, in my research from former occultists, I did see a consistency, which is what okay. I was looking for, uh, which is very important when we're following the evidence. Um, yeah, was something else I was going to say. Oh, yeah, was it uh, St. Maximilian Colby? He has a good a good witness because it was 1917, I think it was, where he saw the Freemasons parading through Rome. Uh, right up to the Vatican and saying the uh, the devil must reign in the Vatican and the Pope will be his slave. 
and they were promulgating uh, all kinds of immoral. <laughs> they said we're going to destroy the church by by morals, by corrupting the morals of the world. So, and we see we see that happening. We see that kind of um, activity of the Freemasons playing out uh, throughout the world. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. So you mentioned spells. Now, I know magic is real because I know it's in scripture. I mean, so that's a pretty easy explanation. I trust the scriptures. How do spells work? I mean, how does, is it the power of suggestion? Because, you know, if you really look into how demons work, it's not as if they, they don't have some sort of like, I don't know, science fiction power over a person where they, I mean, they can possess a person, but it's not like demons can just decide at any moment to pick you up and throw you across a room or something like that. So how do, how would a spell work for these things like ligatures, which if people are just joining us, we talked about it earlier is uh, a spell against fertility. How would that work? Yeah. And this is one of the things that I'm, um, I think I'm going to write more about in part two, cause I already have that started, but I added an author's note at the beginning of this book, kind of in keeping with the tradition from slaying dragons. When I got the uh, Nihil Obstat, the um, censor deputatus, says how you say it, but the, the one who granted the Nihil Obstat said, put a little author's note explaining, you know, exorcists aren't magisterial teachers, just so right. people are aware. So I put an author's note here because I, I sense the need for it just to talk about curses, which is one kind of spell because in part of my research, I, I got to know um, different priests throughout the world who read Slaying Dragons and wanted to offer their commentary on the issue of spells and curses and whether we need to fear like generational spirits and curses and those things, including some SSPX priests I've reached out to because they would seem to be kind of a, a custodian of the tradition even more than anybody else. Yeah. So there's there's a so there, I think there's a divergence right now, which needs to be reconciled. So you have modern public exorcists who talk about spells and curses and the impact and how we need to really protect ourselves. And there are certain prayers we can do to, sh to block or break curses that might be against us. But then I've learned that there are also a lot of um, modern um, private exorcists who never speak publicly, who actually hold a different opinion, some of them at least, where we don't, basically Catholics in a state of grace have no need to fear spells and curses at all because they have no power. And some of them say it's just the power of suggestion. Like if a, a witch does some spell and kills some chicken and sprays blood everywhere, that's kind of terrifying and it might make you afraid. So it's a psychological impact that makes you question whether God's going to protect you or not because your faith is weak and you right. expose yourself to doubt and then the devil can sneak in and work on you there. So in that sense, a spell can have an impact. Um, it, but in another sense, when a witch or a Satanist is doing a spell or a ritual, they are communicating with demons. Uh, some know it, some don't know it. Sometimes it's implied, sometimes it's explicit, they've summoned the demon. So at that point, they are risking possession and they are asking a demon to do something in the world. And sometimes God will allow that to impact us. So some, so there's kind of a vagary, a gray area. It needs to be fleshed out more, I think, by the modern church, like what we need to fear. But the, the end result that I've come up with is that a Catholic in a state of grace needs to have no fear of, of these things, no fear of curses or spells. And I think that's necessary because as the world goes into the occult, it's our mission, especially with the priests and the bishops leading us, to evangelize all these occultists. But if we're afraid of them because they have some kind of secret mystical power that yeah. comes from demons who are <laughs> creatures compared to the almighty God who lives inside of us, um, that there's something off there. And we're never going to go out and convert them if we're afraid of them. 
but you have all these great stories of, of Christ breaking the power and, and St. Paul breaking the power of these spirits. So there's, there's a both, there's a, there's a both, uh, what's the expression of both and both I, and I yeah. Yeah. Both and going on here. Um, so, but, but demons will, cause a witch has no power over a demon. If a demon's going to do something, if a witch says, go, go, um, break this person's plumbing in their house. Well, the demon might be like, sure. Cause I don't, I hate that person. You know, demons hate everybody. They're happy to destroy everything, but God has to allow it. The witch has no authority over the demon. And this is actually one of the things that is in my book where I talk about the occult is full of lies and manipulation and is dangerous and destructive. The demons will pretend, actually do this to people, pretend to be submissive, pretend to be captive, to be like under the power of the witch. But it's all a big joke. It's all a manipulation. The first one harmed and the, the most, the one harmed the most is the witch and the Satanist yeah. rather than people that they're targeting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's the power of suggestion thing. People need to understand how strong that is. Um, you know, if your mind gets a little messed up, you can consent to some pretty crazy things. And ultimately, it's mortal sin that will send you to hell. It's not somebody's spell. Um, theoretically, I mean, you could be completely cursed in a sense, but be, sa be saintly. I mean, someone could have, uh, you know, a major curse on them their whole life and struggle with, you know, darkness and all these kinds of things. But if they keep the faith, I mean, and they die in a state of grace, like that, that does nothing to stop them from going to heaven. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes, and I like how you bring up the, um, the distinction between the sort of public exorcist and the private, it's not to discredit the public exorcist. On the one hand, it's very good that there are exorcists who are very well known because they're raising awareness about the fact that you do have to be careful about certain things and you don't want to get into syncretism and mm -hmm. false religious rituals and things. That's all very good. Um, but on the other hand, I have spoken to some exorcists who have worked privately as well, and they do sound in many ways kind of very different than public exorcists. They're almost very, it's almost a very, mathematical meat and potatoes operation where it's just we go in three or four times we have certain prayers we say and then we report back to the bishop or the superior whoever and uh and if we have to then we go back like it's not there's no it's there's not even really uh it's not it's not some grand plan it's just we say the rituale and we do this with great faith and with a team of prayer people praying and, it's, and that's pretty much it um so if you're just joining us right now, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Charles Frane, and um, he wrote a book. I'm going to show it on the screen here. You can buy it at his website. And he's a really nice website, actually. Um, Slaying, Saying Dragons, The Rise of the Occult, What Exorcists and Formal Occultists Want You to Know. Uh, so if you go to slangdragonspress.com, that's slangdragonspress.com, you can find his book. So I urge everybody to do that. Um, I've gone through a, a fair amount of it. It's very informative. Um, and the thing I like about it, it is a book where you can read it front to back if you want to, but you can also sort of just keep coming back to it almost like a research book. Um, and it's just a good one to have on your shelves. And, uh, I think it's a good book to give to people as well because, you know, curiosity killed the cat as they say, but at the same time, curiosity gets people to read good books, um, <laughs> and look at that cover and they see a cult and well, what's this about? there's a very good chance that they're actually going to pick it up and read it. So, so um, go to slaindragonspress.com. Okay. We're going to talk about the charismatic renewal for just a second here, folks. Um, I want to give a little proviso before I do that. <clears throat> I was in the charismatic renewal 
not as deep as some, but when I came back to the church, the wonderful, amazing people who were so kind to me were charismatic Catholics. And uh, it was the first time in my life I had seen people with supernatural faith, and I have all these positive memories. Nonetheless, one of the reasons why I started moving away from it when I discovered tradition uh, is because I was at some certain events, and I saw some really weird things. Um, you know, I remember one time being at this sort of prayer, praise and worship thing, and I was supposed to be on this prayer team, okay? And this woman beside me was praying over some woman, and uh, she was muttering in tongues, apparently, um, and uh, had another woman beside her muttering in tongues over some young lady, and she muttered something and ran her hands down the girl's back, and it was like she was electrocuted, and she writhed on the floor for like an hour, and I remember at the time being like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and this seems completely satanic to me. Um, being as nice as possible, because the charismatic renewal is full of ama many amazing conservative very traditionally minded in some ways, Catholics. What are some areas people should be careful in that charismatic milieu? Yeah, I think um, uh, signs, so a lot of categories, signs and wonders. Uh, people go after that in the uh, charismatic movement. Um, personal prophecy, personal gifts. Um, the occult offers people gifts. So there, there are a lot of overlaps. Doesn't mean people in the charismatic renewal are at all occultists, but in an age where it's a delicate, where, where faith is delicate, where faith is weak, where the, the leadership, the guidance is very weak. If you get into a spiritual, a spirituality that is precarious, then you, and you have original sin. I mean, not original sin, but you have the weakness that flows from original sin. When we have this, this fallen nature, there's, there's a vulnerability there. So a lot of people go into the charismatic uh, renewal movement for healing, um, for enlightenment, um, and sometimes God doesn't want us to have these things. Sometimes God want us, wants us to carry our cross. He wants us to be like St. Bernadette. St. Bernadette thought she was the stupidest person on the planet. Right. And that was a good thing for her soul to be. She was wrong. She was wrong. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't know Sorry. the generations to come. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think, I think there's that. Sometimes it could be me-centered, uh, the charismatic movement. And also, again, the kind of like the apparitions we were talking about earlier, there isn't a lot of guidance from the hierarchy. I don't yeah. think the, the hierarchy can because of the name charismatic movement. It's almost like a movement that operates by the authority of the Holy Spirit himself, separate yeah. from the church. So how can the church govern a movement of the Holy Spirit? Um, of course, the church can because she has authority to shut things down, to approve. But the just, yeah, the perception is this. Is, it's nothing to latch on to. Yeah. Uh, from a hierarchy perspective, I see what you're saying. So I think it can become a, a false magisterium almost like unto yourself. And that's another thing in the occult is you become your own magisterium. You determine what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, what's appropriate for you, what's going to bring you spiritual riches. So I sometimes, uh, so yeah, I've, I know a lot of people who are in the, in the, you know, charismatic movement, kind of like you do, but I've, I've never liked it. I've never felt comfortable with, charismatic things i mean it could just be my temperament um and i know charis charis uh, charism god gives charisms special spiritual gifts and this happens but um i do think i do think it goes back to what we we're talking about this desperation people in the decline of the faith throughout the world people desperately want to see signs that god is active that god is alive that this is still true despite all these terrible examples from priests and bishops everywhere we want evidence of the supernatural 
But if we get to, there could be a time, you know, I can't remember the prophecies right now about the end times, but where um, that will be absent. Maybe in the end times, God's going to be in kind of a silent mode as, as the world goes into a spirit of, of believing lies when the Antichrist comes on the stage. Like if we're desperate for God to show up and show off and manifest himself in a time when he doesn't want to, then we're going to be going after things that, that we should not. And it's sometimes even just with the um, ignorantly, unknowing that that's what we're doing. So I, I think there need a lot of precautions, a lot of uh, cautionary guidelines on the uh, charismatic movement. Yeah, the going after strange fire, right? We find that in the scriptures. Um, <clears throat> and fire represents the Holy Ghost as well, right? I mean, he comes down as a pillar of fire. So there's a, there's a symbolism there. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I used to be involved in uh, sort of youth youth minute well not ministry but uh, yeah the word ministry it gets used too too loosely but lay people in the sense of ministry don't really have a ministry traditionally but we'll just use that term for just so everyone understands it so when i was involved in something like youth ministry um <clears throat> the more proper term would be apostolate but anyway yeah. um in ministry and you know i'd be around teens and stuff and they would they would go to a conference at you know some steubenville thing or whatever and have this huge experience and come back and, you know, laying hands on each other. And, and I, and I saw a lot of, you know, now, especially I've been in the traditional world world for, you know, five years now, I guess. And it's very disordered to have, especially young people who are unmarried, intimate with one another uh, in, in a, in a setting like that, because for one, there's just so much confusion uh, there's so much immodesty in the culture, obviously so many, everyone, but especially young people nowadays with the devices and things struggle so difficult to strongly with impurity. Um, and I just remember one time, I, you know, I was, it was funny. I was in this charismatic renewal and I was sort of learning traditional things and I one in one foot in one foot out. I remember looking around this room one time with all these young people. And I just thought, this is really strange. Like, if this was a different scenario, what you see is a lot of teenagers being intimate with their hands on each other, but because they're praying, it's okay. And I thought there's, we have no guarantee that these young people like any person have control over their passions, have control over their lust and, and they're telling each other things and they're, and I just thought, wow, that's a, that seems to me, like a really fertile breeding ground for a lot of basically sexual uh, impropriety. And maybe we can transition to this now. You talked about interviewing um, Maria, who I've talked to as well, um, about the satanic ritual abuse. And in her case and other cases, it was through the charismatic renewal because, and I'm not, again, this is not an indictment on charismatic Catholics. Ralph Martin is one of the greatest Catholic voices on the internet. Like there's lots of great ones out there. I get that. But in this sort of loose charismatic umbrella, if the Holy, if the Holy ghost is, is talking to you personally, then it's very easy. And we we all do. uh, There's a, there's a proper way of understanding that. But, but if you're a conduit of the Holy ghost in some sort of special way, then it's very easy to manipulate people. So perhaps, you know, perhaps you could elaborate on how that mentality kind of plays into satanic ritual abuse. Yeah. Um, the way you described it there uh, reminded me of some of the darker occultic rituals that some of the people I interviewed got into. Um, 
like uh, Apollo and Santeria and some other ones where, where demons will come and ride you like a vehicle and then speak through you to give words to the to their children, to the children of the god or goddess that's possessing the person who are in attendance there. And then, so it was that issue of, of, of the, I have a word, you know, like I, God's given me a special revelation for you. People do that. A lot of people in the Protestant world do that. Um, and it could be, you know, it could be genuine, could be not, but as some of the, one of the uh, occultists, that, former occultists that I interviewed said his whole journey into the occult started with Protestant charismatics, with the Protestant charismatic movement, because he was basically told, if you do these, this course, we'll, we'll train you in a way to obtain special secret knowledge, secret knowledge that God does not want you to have, basically yeah. knowledge of the past, knowledge of the future. And he said that's what started him in on the occult. And then he pointed fingers uh, at different Protestant groups that do this kind of um, this kind of uh, manifesting that where they they feel like they can exert their will. And this is where it's, it flips, you know, to a, to another issue from what we're talking about right now. But where they manifest their they exert their will upon our Lord, essentially control God, so to control supernatural power to change their life in the way they want. So there's a there's a, a risk there of abuse. And this is something that's throughout the occult. Whoever has power in the group is um, susceptible to misusing that for abuse. And there's lots of abuse in the occult from these groups that depend on the leader guy who has the deity, has the god of goddess that um, <clears throat> is going to communicate special supernatural, preternatural powers or information. And then you kind of submit. So the, so the people who suffered from um, satanic ritual abuse eventually were brainwashed. Yeah. And submitted to the leader guy, essentially, whoever he was, whichever priest, sadly, unfortunately, in these, these cases, Catholic priests, fallen Catholic priests, and did, did whatever that person said because there was this real hip, hypnotic uh, mind control happening. And there is speculation that there were occultic powers at work, you know, causing this mind control um, to come into being. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It gets really dark at that point. It does get really dark at that point. And and by the way, again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is oh, there it is. Slaying Dragons 2, The Rise of the Occult, What Exorcists and Formal Occultists Want You to Know. Excellent book. Uh way more than we can fit in this in this hour, hour and a half, whatever it'll be together, because there's 350 well-researched pages. First hand testimony. Um, very well done. And um so I want to get to you here because you mentioned in this book that occultists leave the occult. And of course we know this because they, you know, they talk about this on shows and things like that. And you would know this uh, in your research. Why? You have a chapter here, uh, chapter 14, why occultists leave the occult. Why do they leave the occult if it seems to offer all these pleasures and powers and sorts of things? Yeah, this is, this is an important one because it, it unmasks what the occult really is. A lot of people go into the occult thinking it's safe. It's uh, some spiritual adventure. It has secret knowledge, secret power. Um, it's taboo. Therefore, I want to go after it. And it's, again, there's this big lie that it's it's the new age. You know, the, the new yeah. that we're all liberated. Um, we all can connect to the truth. We don't need magisterial things. So it's, again, atheism, me first, exerting your will, everything, all that is everywhere in the modern era, that, that kind of mentality. So why people end up leaving is because they realize this is a lie. <laughs> Once they get into the occult, they realize it's dangerous. And it's like no one is warning them. No 
no one's coaching them. They're co there's all this coaching online, including like some witches, some YouTube witches. And this, I think, is very alarming when it comes to these statistics. Some of them have like 200,000 or 400,000 subscribers on YouTube and very active people, followers. If you look at the comments on their videos, because I watched a number of these and read some of the comments, like they are engaged. Then you look at people like, um, I don't know, how many does Taylor Marshall have? Like 300,000. Four, 450 or something. Yeah, so... Yeah. In the Catholic podcasting world, some of the high markers are similar to the occultic YouTube world, the high markers. Right. And that, that, should, uh, that should be very startling that they have mm. that much attention. But no one is coaching people about the dangers. And when they do, they just dismiss it. There's this blinding of people. Like there's one witch that I watched, active witch, they watched one of her, her videos. And she was talking about uh, basically demons showing up. But she never called them demons because they won't do that. But you know, unfriendly right. spirit, spirits who op did not operate by my rules, which is funny. She had set rules for the spirits that enter her house, and these were not were not obeying the rules. And like, what's? Why are you so clueless? But um, so people leave, leave the occult because the mask comes off. They realize it's all a manipulation. There are demons behind it all. Their life is falling apart. I think it's uh, Adelaide was saying that one of the things that's it's common for witches is they will be the only ones blind to the fact that their whole world is a disaster. Their life yeah. is a disaster on every front, but they keep doing spell after spell after spell to try to fix it, fix this, do a spell for this. They're all yeah. hooked in. And then all of a sudden something will just wake them up. They'll look around and realize, wow, this is, this is not working. Or then they'll try to get out or the demons will start to retaliate because demons are evil. So they'll play the game only for so long and then they feel like they've got you and then they'll start to abuse you. So occultists all suffer from some kind of diabolical attack, either while they're active occultists or at the first moment that they decide I might leave because the demons are paying attention. They're like, no, no, no. You've made pacts with us. You've, we've given you things. You owe us. We're not letting you go. And God allows this kind of dominion to play out and makes it very difficult for people to get out of the occult. Um, so the mask comes off. They get attacked by demons. They realize their life is falling apart. They realize it's all a big sham. Like Wicca was made up in the 1950s or 60s. Some people yeah. think it's ancient, but it's not. They just made yeah. it up. <laughs> and once people realize that, like, wow, I'm such, uh, I've been deceived for so long. Um, yeah. So those are some of the common ways people get out or start to get out. I had a friend, I won't say where he worked, um, but, uh, you know, unionized job, leftism infiltrates pretty much every union that exists. And, um, for better or for worse, and they were, uh, you know, to be inclusive, they were going to put up a Wicca calendar to represent some of the beliefs or whatever. And uh, he said, he went in and talked to administration, and he says, this is like, Wicc Wiccans worship Satan. <laughs> and the, initially, the administration was very, um, whoa, taken back, like, is that true? Because, I don't know, I guess it's not okay to worship Satan yet in, not yet. I guess... Not yet. I mean, I guess the woke still pretend that they don't worship Satan. But uh, anyway, they came back with a response. Well, no, we talked to so-and-so, and it's just about, you know, the powers of nature, and it's nice, and it's this, and it's that. And it's like, okay. You know, because, of course, they Googled it, and Wikipedia gave them a very accurate answer, of course. Mm. Um, okay. <sighs> last thing I wanted to touch on, save the best for last. By the way, again, ladies and gentlemen, here's the book, Rise of the Occult. Slain Dragons 2, Charles Fraune, 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 Fraun, depending on our, our dialect. I'll never get it right. Um, but um, it's alleged, 
that on the rainbow flag, which is now not a rainbow flag, it's like this, it's like a oh, rainbow yeah. version of the South African flag with the weird triangles on it now. Um, it's alleged that one of the colors initially represented magic. I've never been able to find, I mean, of course, how could you find a proof of this? It's, it's like trying to find proof of, you know, satanic ritual abuse in Hollywood. You find some proof and it's pretty obvious, but at the same time it's denied. So, I mean, it's, it's not like there's a video tape recorder around, you know, I get it. Yeah. What's, what's the link between the occult stuff and the rainbow push and lifestyle in society near the church? Yeah. If I can't remember the exact statistics, but overwhelmingly you'll see an overlap within the occultic community. There is an embrace of uh, homosexuality and all the gender, whatever madness that's happening. Um, so you'll see a, a lot of witches who are that uh, are, are of the alphabet team to, you know, however we want to refer to it. So they don't get canceled on YouTube and a lot of people on both sides are, so there's a mingling. And also you see that, um, with the uh, in the church, where you see the corruption of more of the faith, and you see the dabbling and the openness to the occult among high churchmen. You also see a tolerance, a push for homosexuality and everything that comes with it. So there definitely is is an overlap, and one of the reasons is that everything Satan does is a perversion or an inversion of what is true. He's destroying the image of God uh, in man and trying to recreate his own image in us. That's one of the things the demons do is try to make us after their own image. And they are full of disorder and perversion and inversion. And one of the biggest forms of that is a se the sexual form of perversion, inversion, and um, disorder, which is homosexuality and everything that comes with that. So with the occult is a total, um, total, I don't know how you refer to it, but complete moral collapse. Like, the, the morality in the occult is all bad. There's no occult form of the occult that has good morals that resemble Christianity. It's just not there. Yeah, it's, it's not there. It's, all, it's aberration after aberration. And that proves that one of the um, priests I reference is Father Ermattinger. He wrote a book called The Trouble with Magic. And he points out that the first form of magic, the first superstitious act, first magical ritual was eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. by Adam and Eve, because they thought if they ate this fruit, they would become yeah. gods. And that's superstitious. And you're also breaking God's commandment. So um, and all all kinds of disorders come from that. It's it's the devil's religion and he pushes immorality. So it's uh, you'll see it. if you look at statistics, you'll see the overlap between this kind of sexual perversion and magic. Well, and, you know, um, you mentioned the whole um, sort of life being in disarray of these, um, about, uh, these, you know, these occult people. And, um, it's very similar in the rainbow community as well. Um, you know, I think they tried to pull a fast one by with will and grace and shows like this and look, it's just this mm -hmm. fun way to live in New York or whatever. And, um, but here's the reality people, um, you know, there's this term physiognomy. People have probably heard this term. It's basically you start to look like your interior. You look you look on the outside like your inside. You look on the outside like your interior life. And you know one of the things you realize, you know, I can't make this a day fide day teaching or something like that. But you know, when I started to go to tradition, immediately I noticed even a difference in how many of the priests looked. Like I have not yet. Yeah 
met a traditional priest who is saying the, you know, living the traditional ways, who looks effeminate. I haven't, and, and again, there's always going to be exceptions, and, you know, no one's, I get people have their stories. I'm just saying they look literally more masculine, and I realize they they literally have a more masculine spirituality. Uh, the bishops of the SSPX, the the strong bishops like um, like Schneider, it's, you know, um, uh, it's men like this. They actually look impressive. There's something about them. Mm-hmm. Where then, you know, I I don't know. I mean, these bishops that I've met that I know are sadly, you know, falling short in various ways. And there's almost they almost there's a physiognomy where they start to look effeminate. And the reason I bring this up is because look at the way as this rainbow lifestyle has infiltrated to borrow taylor marshall's term you know he's such a Taylor's a friend of mine but man oh man he stole that word from all of us now we can't use it without <laughs> every time we say it some of it's a good book i'm just to. saying it's kind of funny yeah he took that word and now every time we say it, it's going to remind us so bravo um but um but you know there's really is you know as this as this rainbow lifestyle has infiltrated people's lives into the depths of it i was at the march for life in ottawa a year ago on parliament hill and there was a huge contingency of this rainbow lifestyle advocating for abortion. And man, oh man, I've, I've never seen such sickly looking people. I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. You know, everything from the mutilation to the hair colors to I don't know why you dress like you're not even homeless. That's an insult to homeless people. It's like it, it's, it's like there's no such thing as color. Even the, even the colors are bad colors. So there's a big truck going by here if people can hear it. Um, Oh, he's chipping a tree. Wonderful. Even uh, even the colors are almost like like ugly colors. You know, there's just there's just such an ugliness to it. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just a little rant. But does that make sense? There's just it almost it almost it almost like comes out of the person and and it becomes the way they look. Yeah, and to answer the question you brought up, like the, the overlap between. Um the rainbow people, the, the term you used, um, and a magic is that same thing you see with magic. But people go into the occult, you know, more broadly, is that um, all the occultists I interviewed talked about the devil seems to mark his own with disordered looks, with like, and it's the same thing you described with multi piercings, multi tattoos, strange hair, um, not looking like their gender, not looking like male, female, this androgyny or this crossover or this like split or this, even like some of the extremes, you know, putting, um, embedding things into your skull and beneath your skin to give you these bulges and bubbles and horns and whatnot. And these huge gauges, it's the total disfiguration of the image of God to mark you. And that's one of the things that people kept pointing out. The devil is marking you as his own. And, these will leave, and one of the, the important things is wounds and scars. The devil and the occult play on these things, but also the occult further wounds and scars you to make you so disfigured that you you give up, you despair, you don't even try to get out. And I think both lifestyles, magic and the, the rainbow lifestyle, or the, or the occult and the rainbow lifestyle, damage you to such an extent that you don't know how to get out. And while a lot of people do leave the occult, a lot don't because they can't. They can't figure out how to escape. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you can hear a loud noise in the background outside my window, there's literally someone chipping a tree. Hopefully, my microphone settings cut it out a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, we're good over here. Okay, good. Last thing I'll say, um, actually, two things. People are asking in the chat if you have an audiobook. Do you have plans for that? I have plans, yes, but not. Okay. it hasn't started yet. When I did audio for Slaying Dragons, it didn't take very long. So, Did you do it yourself? 
I did not. I had somebody do Slaying Dragons. I've thought about doing the audio myself. Um, okay. But you've got I know, I know a guy if you need help. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. We'll. Uh, it's coming. Uh, let, let me know if you do have one, and then I'll make sure I mention it to my people. Um, and you say, in one of the last chapters here, you do say the church is the great liberator. Maybe um, maybe that's the last thing you can speak to for people that are struggling with this or or, or, or know someone who is. What's, what's the message of hope how the church is the great liberator for this predilection? Yeah, and that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I hope I was inspired to do is, is end my book with, with a lot of hope or hopeful messages. And one of the things, I think that's chapter 20. If it's chapter 20, that's the one that includes a lot of talk about the traditional Latin mass. So overwhelmingly, the people I interviewed got out of the occult by going into the traditional Latin mass, the traditional devotions of the church. Because there's the power, there's the flow of grace, there's the flow of truth, the black and white. Um, and uh, so the, the church is a great liberator, both through like spiritual warfare, the work of exorcists, just the devotional life. I had collected a lot of stories of God, even our, our Lord operating directly in the lives of these occultists to as soon as there's even the slightest desire to get out, he just comes swarming in. And eradicates the hold of the devil. And we we saw kind of like when St. Paul was converted. It's similar to that. Like even a Satanist, he was converted in the middle of a satanic ritual. He claims um, that our Lord appeared instead of this demon. And then he was just overwhelmed, taken aback, struck with fear, and then abandoned the, the occult like the next day. And another great priest, uh, he's now a priest now, Father Valinde, he was in the um, Hinduism. And he was converted just by a missionary who asked him, like, because he was baptized. He's like, so who is Jesus for you now? And at that moment, our Lord spoke to him and was like, get out of the occult, get out of Hinduism. And he, he bolted. So our Lord operating through his church uh, has done miracles. And people have these miraculous conversions or slow and steady. Truth pulls you. So a lot of occultists are looking for truth. This is one thing people can think about, because a lot of people sadly do have kids and friends and family and neighbors or students you teach who are going into the occult. One of the things that came up a lot is that people in the occult are looking for truth. They're looking for mysticism. They're looking for God. They're looking for answers. It's just the church is not you know, on the local level. The church is not stepping up, is not filling the void. So. We can. So part of that, one of the things is what can Catholics do? I think that might be one of the chapter, chapter 19. So we can do things. We can reach out. We can bring people to the Latin mass, tell them all about the Latin mass, tell them about devotions, give them these sacred medals, sacramentals, pray for them. Because um, the church, I mean, this is what our Lord did in the gospels. It's the God, liberation. We're being saved. We're being redeemed. And it's it's happening. And, and I think the big, in our generation, it could be that the, the heresy of the day becomes the occult or the, the false religion that we're clashing with um, is the occult. And the church does have the power to crush it and bring people out of it and is doing that. Yeah, you know what, that actually is a really astute observation because, uh, you know, Pius X said the heresy that we were going to deal with in the last century was modernism. Most people have never read Pashendi. They don't really know what modernism is, even many priests. Uh, the two pillars of modernism are uh, vital imminence and the evolution of dogma, which are two sides of the same coin, vital imminence being uh, your experience or the religious experience is the gauge of whether or not something is true. So, for example, if somebody goes to an alleged apparition site, uh, you know, has some sort of experience, this is the barometer of whether or not that thing is true, which you see that flowering out, 
how are we to say Islam is false? How are we to say Orthodox Judaism doesn't cut it? How are we to say that Protestants are incorrect when they have a charismatic experience? And for them, it's a very real experience, which would be a, a, an experience of a real religion in the, in the mind. And then the evolution of dogma flows from there because obviously the dogma will evolve with the experiences of the people. And, and those are at the heart of both of those things. So that was a great observation. Okay, last thing. How can Catholics support you? Where can they go and find your book? And, and maybe you got a Patreon or things like that. How can we help you out? Yeah. Um, so this is full-time work, the second year, closing in the second year of my apostolate. And I, like we mentioned, I call it an apostolate, not a ministry. Um, so Patreon, if you go to my website, Slaying Dragons Press, I now have a banner, which you'll see floating across the top. If you want to support me, here's a way. Click on this link. It gives a different things. I have a Patreon. Even just adding in a contribution, if you buy a book from my website, you can put in an extra tip or whatever it calls it. I think it's just a contribution. Um, if you click here for more information, it takes you to an article I wrote. But um, spread the word. So buy the book, get one for your priest. If you know a bishop, you know, ask him to endorse it. This book already has the endorsement of Bishop Athanasius Schneider, which is huge. You can see pretty right good. There. That's pretty good. Yeah. So yeah. I need more of those. Um, you know, buying the book on Amazon is also very good. They give a good royalty as a self-publisher. And plus, there's a lot of publicity there. Leave reviews. Um, get my book ranked down like Kennedy's book is. <laughs> you know, he beat me. Um so, um, yeah, so support um, and praying for this apostolate. I have, you know, part two of the Rise of the Occult in the works. And I have Excellent. When's that going to be done, you think? Well, it's almost done. So it's just a matter of time. If I can get to it, uh, it could just be uh, two or three months. It may be that God wants me to have it delayed more than that just so I can fine tune it. But most of it's written because, like, I had to split the book in half and then organize yeah. this one in a narrative, a nice flow. <laughs> But part two will be a lot of research. It might be a little clunkier, but it's more information that people need to know. It's just there's so much. And um, so like stories about Reiki, people running into Reiki everywhere, what Satanism really is, how abortion is a rit occultic ritual, like literally it is and how like what Wicca is like, where what which what what these people are actually doing. And what it looks like in the wild. So the occult in the wild is one of the themes in part two. It's like, what are we looking at on the ground with greater detail? So slaindragonspress.com. There we go. Slaindragonspress.com. That's excellent. All right, Charles. It's been a slice. And everyone, don't go get possessed by Satan and play with demons. That's probably the best message you could take from today. <laughs> don't, go, don't go playing with fire, literally. Um, and again, get the book. Rise of the Occult, Slaying Dragons 2. So happy you came on and did this. Let me know if you got anything else in the work. We'd love to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, you can. the wood chipper is in full uh, swing beside me. Yeah, and uh, this has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless. Go to thekennedyreport.com and visit the TKR store to see our new products, Kennedy's Choice Beard Oil. You can use this on your beard to help with alleviating itchiness, dryness, and irritation of skin. And don't worry, no animals were used in testing this product except for myself. Use Kennedy's Choice Beard Balm for a softer, healthier, manageable beard that is made with natural ingredients. And trust me, I know a thing or two about beards. Visit thekennedyreport.com and check out the TKR store. The links for this are 